According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John 14. In John 14, we are in the midst of point four in our outline, getting ready to move on to point five. But we've got some details that I uh, gave you at the end of class last week to think about, to chew on, and I want to return to those here this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, confessing uh, everything that needs to be confessed. Might be extra long this morning. And then as soon as I'm in fellowship, we'll, uh, we'll get started. Almighty Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege that we have to assemble together. Father, we ask at this hour that you would quiet our hearts, Father, that... Uh, you would turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Not just turning our eyes to Him, but fixing our eyes on Him. Father, keep us locked in where our thinking needs to be. And uh, we just thank You for Your truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, John 14. Uh, point 4 in the outline. Uh, let me just quickly run through points 3 and 4. The uh, first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of the rapture. Verses 1 through 4 here, not often taught as a rapture passage uh, because it's not the primary rapture passage. If you want to teach the doctrine of the rapture to your children or your neighbors, your friends or enemies, whoever you want to teach the doctrine of the rapture to, where are you going to go? You're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 4. You're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. And you're going to show them through 1 Corinthians uh, 15 with uh, the transformation where we don't all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. But that chapter talks about the momentary change in the twinkling. The moment the, that chapter does not talk about the snatching up. So you go to First uh, Thessalonians 4 and you find out about the snatching up, where the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So First Thessalonians 4 talks about being caught up, harpazo, which is where you know in the Latin where we get the word rapture from. So th- these are our primary rapture passages. First Thessalonians 4 doesn't mention the transformation. But let's face it, if we don't get transformed, that snatching up is going to kill us. <laughs> okay? if, if this mortal body gets snatched up to the clouds, I'm, I'm in trouble. So 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the transformation in the moment, the twinkling of an eye. We lay off mortality, we put on immortality. And then 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about snatching up. And so we put those passages together and we see how that works. And then when, you want, when you're ready to add the third passage to your rapture doctrine, you bring them here. Bring him to John 14 and show them that this was on the night Jesus was betrayed. He promised his disciples that he was going to heaven. He was going to his father's house. He was going to be preparing a place for them. And it was a place that didn't exist yet on this night, on this Thursday, April 2nd, 33 A.D. This place for the church does not yet exist. There are already in my father's house are many Dwelling places, many apartments, many condos, all right? And these are for believing Jews, believing Gentiles of previous stewardships, previous dispensations. But the church has not, the bride has not yet been provided an eternal dwelling. Jesus has to go and prepare that after his resurrection and ascension. And so he says he's going to do so. And when he returns, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, okay, is that heaven or earth? Is that... That's that's the Father's house. That's in heaven. That's not Jerusalem. Where I am, there you may be also. And so we understand because we have 1 Corinthians 15, because we have 1 Thessalonians 4, with our church-age doctrine and our hindsight, we're able now to go back to John 14 and say, oh, all right, he's going to come again and receive us to himself. That's why we're gathered together in the air. He can't land on the earth. You understand, he has to, we have to meet him in the air so he can take us back to, to heaven and take us to, the, to this uh, dwelling place here for the church. All right, so that's point three, and there's some subpoints on that, A, B, C, and D, but hopefully uh, you're solid on that. You'll be able to teach the doctrine to anybody that might ask. Under point four, the second doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of greater works. The doctrine of greater works. And for this, we have verses seven through 14, the next section of this chapter, the greater works that we are going to do, greater works even than Jesus did, and uh, information uh, associated to this. And the greater works requires knowing the Father, requires knowing Jesus Christ. And we uh, discussed this last week about how they did not know him in verse 7. If you had known me, but you didn't. 
you would have known my father, but you don't. Not until now. It's only from now on. And you see that in the second part of verse 7. From now on. And so it's only moving forward with a crucified Christ, with a resurrected and glorified Christ, with Jesus Christ seated at the Father's right hand. Only in that set of circumstances, in other words, only in the church age, can born-again believer priests understand the Son and the Father in the intimate, powerful way that is being introduced here in this chapter. Israel never could. Israel could look forward to the coming Messiah, but they would not know him intimately like we know him intimately. All right? We're the bride. And if you think about it, the bride knows her husband more intimately than anybody else in the, in the universe. And so we as the bride know our Savior more intimately than Israel ever could, than the Gentiles ever could. The Gentiles knew Messiah was coming. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right? Israel knew that Messiah was coming. But they did not know Messiah and they did not know the Father like you and I know Messiah and the Father. And of course, I and the Father are one and we understand how that works. We're going to see more of that coming up when we look at this abiding that comes up here in this chapter. So, three and a half years of walking and traveling with Jesus and they still don't know him like we do. You know, do you ever wonder if you could get a time machine and go back and kind of walk around Galilee when Jesus was walking around Galilee? Wouldn't that be cool to sit down with him, to eat with him, to watch him, uh, you know, to be on the mountain when he feeds the 5,000? Okay. You know, the 10 of us could go and we'd be the 5,010. I'm sure he could he could feed us. Okay. All right. I miscounted 12, including myself in the recording booth. That's fine. I don't count when I'm up here. Um but the point being, would you want to go back in time and watch? Well, yeah, there'd be parts that would be pretty cool to see. But here, he, Philip traveled with him for three and a half years or longer. And uh, doesn't know him. Does not know him, does not know the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Have I been so long with you, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, the truth is, he has seen Jesus, but he has not seen Jesus. Not in the way that the church does. Okay? He saw him in earthly terms. He saw him from a standpoint of Israel's stewardship. He saw him from the standpoint of a, of a student uh, to his rabbi, uh, from the standpoint of a, of a believing Jew to his, to his Messiah, but not in terms of the bride of Christ to Christ. And so this is what we're going to have coming up. These are the blessings of what we have in the church that we just take for granted. But they're being introduced here on the night in which Jesus is betrayed. So the incarnation ministry of Jesus did not allow even his closest disciples to know him or to know the Father. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John reclined on his breast. John knew him better than anybody else knew him on this earth. And he's included in this list of if you had known me. And he doesn't. Not yet. Philip requested a demonstration of the Father. Of course, Jesus was the demonstration of the Father. And now we, in our stewardship, we get to be the demonstration of Christ and the Father. We are the sweet aroma, the sweet fragrance. Personal acquaintance does not produce spiritual intimacy. Solely on the basis of time spent together. Have I been with you so long? You know, you can, you can sit in a church for 20 years. And if all you're doing is logging time, what are you really doing? What are you really doing? And likewise, I mean, you could, there's even marital applications on this. You could be married for 20 years. You could be living under the same roof. But you're not, your souls aren't intimate. You're not like-minded. You're not, um, you understand how this works. It's more than just proximity. It's proximity. It requires proximity. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you can't be at a total distance from the Lord and come to know Him. But when you are near to Him... Are you fellowshipping? Are you growing? Are you occupied with Christ? Are, is your mind saturated with the Word of God? Are you bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ? This is when you are truly going to come to know the, uh, the body of Christ. Now, where we left off, let me get down through D and E, some of these things. The abiding of the Father and the Son is the pattern which will be exhibited in the coming dispensation of the church. And let's just look through this because they don't believe this yet and he's urging them to do so verse 10 do you not believe that i am in the father and the father is in me now they don't this is a question or you could rephrase it as a statement you do not believe 
you do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. From an Old Testament standpoint, how would they understand the Father and the Son the way that we do in the church? They, they had no capacity for that. No written revelation regarding that. No ability to know that. And even the, the positional truth of abiding. Did God ever abide in somebody in the Old Testament? The closest they came would be when the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody. But I think like the Holy Spirit coming upon a prophet or coming upon a judge, there's a difference between coming upon and dwelling within. You understand that? This is where I think even you know prepositions are important. Let's understand our prepositions. The idea of coming upon, resting upon, is kind of on top of, external. Uh, you, you bear up under it and it's resting over you. Uh, but... That's different from abiding within, actually living within, actually nurturing from within, bearing fruit from within. I think there's huge differences there. And so do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? They don't. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And so he's the pattern, he's the prototype for what, how we operate. It's no longer the life I live is no longer me, but the life I live is now what? The life that I live in the flesh is now Jesus Christ. Okay, Plus, uh, you've got Philippians where it's God the Father who's at work in you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. Jesus was the pattern for this. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. So much of our focus on, on what Christ did in His first advent uh, ministry, we say was all the second person of deity, it was all God the Son. Well, not, not by Himself it wasn't. The Father was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The Father was in Christ to willing to do of the Father's good pleasure. Jesus had to say, not my will, but thine be done. Because if it was Jesus by Himself, He wouldn't have done it. You think that's true? He said, not my will, but thine be done. He confessed right then and there that His human will was different from the Father's will. And thank God for it. All right? So, this abiding of the Father and the Son, it's the pattern. It's the pattern that we take for granted on a day-by-day basis, but it's our reality in the church age. Never before was it a feature of Israel stewardship or the Gentile stewardship or the, the angelic stewardship as much as we know about that. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This reciprocal, see it's a two-way street. The Father is in Jesus. Jesus is in the Father. Are you in Christ? Yep. Is Christ in you? Yep. Are you in the Father? Yep. Is the Father in you? Yep. Are you in the Spirit? Is the Spirit in you? Okay. So Jesus is the pattern, but we actually have more than Jesus had. Jesus had the Father in him, and he had the Holy Spirit who came upon him when the, when the Holy Spirit descended as a dove at the River Jordan rested upon him in a manner like like every other Old Testament prophet. The Spirit of God rested upon him. But all Jesus had was the indwelling of the Father. He didn't have the indwelling of himself. (laughs) And he didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling of the Father, the indwelling of the Son, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All three indwell us, and we are positionally in all three members of the Trinity. Isn't that awesome? Does that excite you? All right. Now, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, verse 12, he who believes in me. Now, in all of these verses, believe is pistuo, from verse 10 to verse 11 to verse 12. The same verb every time, pistuo. And uh, the noun pistis, we're very familiar with pistis is the noun that means faith or trust or belief. And the verb pistuo means to believe, to place your faith in, or to place your trust in. And it is a transitive verb. It requires an object. Oftentimes it will take prepositions, and understanding the use of those prepositions is is important. Um, And also, I think, relaxing over how sometimes the prepositions are used interchangeably. Uh, We're okay with that, too. But... When a, when a single, and that's when you're comparing a passage with another passage. When you're in the same passage and you observe a progression of the prepositions and the terms, 
You better pay attention and take note and ask yourself, why is this? And that's what we have here. That's what we have here. Point F. This passage illustrates. And did you chew on this in the last seven days? I said, spend some time on this. Chew on this. This passage illustrates the comparisons and contrasts of faith. The comparisons and contrasts of faith. We have believe that in verse 10. We have believe me in verse 11. And we have believe in me in verse 12. And that's a progression in this passage. And I introduced it last week. I'm going to teach it this week. I wish I was. I wish I was more mature. <laughs> maybe, maybe after I've been a pastor for 50 years, I'll come back and and spend, I don't know, uh, 20 hours in this in in these three verses. Believe that. Believe in. Or I'm sorry. I believe me, and believe in me. Maybe we can compare them, but we better contrast them. There are similarities, and and when we observe similarities, we can make appropriate comparisons. But there are also differences. And when there are differences, we better make the appropriate contrasts. And it, it, it's, the, the problem comes in when people gloss over the differences, they don't make the appropriate contrasts, and then they just lump everything together and say, well, it's all the same. Okay? Not too long ago, we, did, we dealt with this with respect to the New Covenant. And we saw how in the New Covenant... Uh, we looked at Jeremiah 31, and it said your sins will be forgiven. And we, and somebody might say, well, hey, my sins are forgiven, right? I must be under the new covenant because in new covenant it says your sins will be forgiven, and my sins are forgiven. So, and so what happens is they lock in on the similarities, and they they draw the comparison, and they say, well, it's got to be the same thing then because of the similarities. And they fail to note the differences. The differences are that the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm not in the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm, I'm in the church. And so they fail to observe, observe the differences. Right? Now, it's fair when there's similarities to, to draw the comparisons as far as they can go. But you cannot ignore the differences and fail to draw the contrasts. That's what I'm saying. So when there are differences, draw the appropriate contrasts. And take that as far as it can go. Do both, the comparisons and the contrast. And so that's what we have here. This passage illustrates the comparisons and contrasts of faith. Do you need more, more examples? Israel and, uh, and Yahweh were spoken of in marital terms. Christ and the church were spoken of in marital terms. So there's similarities. But don't take it too far because there's also differences. So we will find comparisons we can make, but we must also find contrasts we have to make. Israel was the faithless bride of Yahweh. And Israel played the harlot. And Yahweh divorced Israel. All right? The church is the virgin uh, espoused bride of Jesus Christ. And we've not yet been married to Jesus Christ. We're still promised. We're still espoused. And we're still virgin. Huge differences. So don't take the comparisons too far when there's huge differences to make. All right, so believe that, believe me, believe in me. Let's look at him again. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? All right, anytime we make a statement or anytime the Bible makes a statement of believe that, okay, is typically uh, it's haughty plus something or it's, there's an there's a expression. It doesn't matter what, is it, what it is. The content is information that is true and or conceivably it could even be false. But... Believe that is content of information, right? And facts, that's right, facts. Believe that is a body of facts. And if a person believes or doesn't believe, does it change the, the facts in any way? doesn't change the facts at all, okay? Uh, the facts remain the objective universal facts, whether I believe it or not. Okay. Uh, or the facts remain false, whether I believe it or not. You know, the Muslims believe if they 
martyr themselves for the cause of Allah, they believe that they're going to go to Muslim heaven and have 72 virgins. Now, they believe that. It's not true, even if they believe that, even if they exercise faith that. See, now, and they can exercise faith in that, even though they're unregenerate. They can exercise faith in their lies. So let's believe that. Okay. I think very commonly we have believed that in uh, in our gospel messages. This is why I wanted you to chew on it. Because when I finish describing all three of these, I'm going to take you back to the gospel and say, which one is the best one to use in your evangelism? Okay. So we often say, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? It's factual information. He died on the cross, whether you believe it or not. Okay. Do you, but believing that he died on a cross, does that save you? Accepting the, the information that Jesus died on a cross. Okay. Uh, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place? Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you believe that Jesus was sinless his entire life? Okay. Do you believe that Jesus rose again on the third day? Now, any one of these factual information things is accepting and the, is accepting the, the reality of the factual information is that what provides you your eternal life. Let's move on to some of these other ones now. Believe me. Believe me. The believe me makes it a little bit more personal, but notice the believe me is followed by another that. You see that? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, this is an extension of believe that, that adds some evidence. It adds some components. Now, believe me is believing a uh, message that a person is speaking. It's believe me is different from believe in me. Believe me that. Okay? And so it, it, adds, a, it adds a bit of evidence. Okay? Uh, because... You, somebody may tell you that, some random fact, somebody may tell you that, um, I, I should have thought of this earlier, I'm, <laughs> sometimes I'm not good off the top of my head. Somebody may tell you that the earth has 70% water over its surface. Do you believe that? Could be wrong, yeah. Could be more, could be less. Maybe it's 75%. Maybe it's 68%. Maybe it's roughly 70, but it's more of a 71.2. Okay? And so you're either going to believe or not believe. And if it's, if it's me or some other yokel telling you, then you, know, you may not believe it at all. But now if, an ocean, if a professionally trained oceanographer was to come in here, and this was his training, and this was his career, and this was his background, and this was his experience. And he told you that, well, really, the surface of the earth is covered by 71.6% water compared to the land mass of, of planet Earth. Would you then believe that? Okay. You would believe him that. Okay. Because he has credibility. Maybe you didn't believe somebody else. He has credibility, so you believe him. And because he has credibility and because you believe him, you also accept that the factual information of what he says is to be trusted. So here's, it's kind of a step beyond believe that by evaluating the trustworthiness or credibility of the one speaking. See that? Now, even if, even if the person you're listening to is kind of shady, <laughs> okay, and uh, you have reason not to trust him, there still might be other evidence that will say, well, you know what? Yeah, he's kind of a flake, but there is these other bits of evidence here too. Okay. He says, um, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. 
So here's a causative. Here's evidence. Believe because of the works themselves. This hit the Pharisees a lot of ways, too. They didn't like Jesus. They, they, all their Pharisee buddies told him that he was a heretic. All their Pharisee buddies told him that he, he, uh, he was a false teacher. He was a, he was blasphemer. He was a false Christ and so forth. And so they didn't, they didn't, they, because they believed one, they believed themselves. <laughs> they, they trusted in themselves. They trusted their schooling. They trusted their, their opinion of things. They trusted their, uh, the, you know, everything about themselves. They didn't trust him. But he was doing these miracles. And for Nicodemus and for some of the others, that was a problem. They said, what can we do? We cannot deny that these miracles are taking place. The man born blind says, what do you know? You're calling him a liar, but I once was blind and now I see. He says, that's all I know. And they kept, uh, they kept getting him to change his testimony and, you know, give God the glory. And, you know, we know this man's a blasphemer. And the man born blind said, well, whether he's a blasphemer or not, I don't know. What I know is I was blind, now I see. Okay? And so maybe you find somebody not credible. Uh, you know, I, I have no reason to trust what you're telling me. Except now I've got this other evidence here. And this is giving me confidence. Again, that the information I'm trusting in is accurate information. And so we have... Uh, we have patterns here that I think are, are useful for us to, to describe the process of faith, the process of believing. God never expects us to believe in nothing. The unbelievers accuse us of having blind faith, of just believing you know, mythology and just you know, listening to Bible stories as if there's no reason to trust this book. There are plenty of reasons to trust this book. There are more reasons to trust this book than anything else that's ever existed on, in, in the history of the world. So... Do I believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? I believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe Jesus because Jesus said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So I believe that and I believe him. And I believe because of evidence and other uh, things that can be observed. They give me reason to believe. All right. But none of that saves me. None of that saves me. There is one object only, and it's not a factual information. There is one object of faith that is sufficient unto eternal life, and that is Christ. Not anything about Christ, but Christ. And this is where the third phrase is important. Believe in. Believe in me. All right? Not believe me in what I'm saying. Believe in me in who I am, in what I am, in what I'm offering. And here's the third step. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. And so this is not just factual information. This is not just something about Jesus. The year he was born, the year he died, the, the, the means of his physical death, the means of his spiritual death, the, the work he accomplished, or anything about him. It's him. Faith in him. Trust in him. Whosoever believes in him. This is what we see here. The works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. Now, before he dies on the cross, I'm talking about every Old Testament believer from Adam and Eve and all the way to the cross. Any Old Testament believer got saved the same way you and I did, believing in Christ. They didn't have a, the same information we have, but it's not information that saves us. It's faith in Christ, the person of Christ. That Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. They looked forward to a coming Messiah. They trusted in Christ. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He didn't use the word Messiah. He was Gentile. He used the word Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. He placed his faith in his coming Redeemer. Every Old Testament believer placed their faith in a coming Redeemer. There was a three and a half year period of time on earth where unbelievers could place their faith in a present Messiah, the Messiah who's here. They could trust in the Messiah that they 
physically saw, but only for that three and a half year period of time. We place our faith in the past, in the Christ who came. The Christ who came, the Christ who died, the Christ who rose again, the Christ who ascended, the Christ who was seated at the Father's right hand. But it's none of those facts about him that saves us. It's our faith in him. Trusting in him. And we stop trusting in ourselves. We stop trusting in our works. We stop trusting in anything that we'd previously been trusting in before. Or we stop trusting in the nothing we were trusting in before. Okay, And we actually start to trust Jesus Christ, trusting him for the eternal life that the Father promised through him. Is this making sense? All right. Because this this sparks a lot of emotions and this sparks a lot of um, a lot of uh, struggle, I think, in some people's minds. Now. Um. Not trying to split hairs, not trying to not trying to uh, uh, be uh, nitpicky, but there is a progression here from believe that, believe me, to believe in me, and that what's the pinnacle of this is the final one. It's the believe in me and those who believe in me. You know, there's going to be a ton of people that believe Jesus died on the cross, and they believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they never trusted in Christ to appropriate that in their own account. They never trusted in Christ to receive the eternal life that was promised. They knew it. They even believed in all the factual information. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, on that day, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. The demons believe. They believe factual information. They knew who he was. They knew and believed. But they didn't believe in him, see, nor would they have the capacity to do so. All right. <laughs> now, having said all that, if we're all relaxed, let me also say that uh, even a crummy gospel message, still the Holy Spirit is omnipotent enough to overpower that. And a lot of times um, people have said, you know, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And people have done that. And at the same time, they're believing in the facts. Are they also believing in the person? Yeah, a lot of times we can't separate the facts from the person. And so, uh, you know, people said, invite Jesus into your heart. And all these terrible, terrible gospel calls, you know, using Revelation 3 or whatever they want to do. And uh, I'm just thankful that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent enough to overcome flawed, uh, flawed phraseology. Not that we want to, we don't want flawed phraseology. We want to be the best evangelist we can. That's why I hope you can come back on Saturday. Saturday morning from 8 to 2, Dan and Doug are going to be teaching the, the You Can Tell It seminar and taking you through how you can give the gospel. Anybody can. Anybody can. Trust Christ for eternal life. All right. Finally, the last thing I want to get out of this before we move on to the love passage here. Um, the ascension and session of Jesus Christ is causative. The ascension and session of Jesus Christ is causative. And it's causative to the greater works that the Father and Son will achieve. I left out a word there on the screen. It is causative to the greater works that the Father and Son will achieve within and through church members. The ascension and session of Jesus Christ is causative to the greater works that the Father and the Son will either perform or achieve or accomplish or do. Um, the greater works that the Father and Son will do within and through church members. It says, uh, greater works than these He will do because I go to the Father. Without the ascension and session of Jesus Christ, you and I could not do what we do in the church. We could not do the greater works. The ability to do greater works is because Jesus goes to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So it's the Father who's at work in and through us. It's Jesus who's at work according to our request. 
according to our request. The Son will do the work. But it's because He goes to the Father. He'll say here shortly, you know what, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I, if I was to stay here, um, you couldn't do these greater works. He has to go away so that He and the Father can send the Holy Spirit. So it's causative. Again, when we draw our distinctions, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything else. Israel never had advantage of this. Um, the Gentiles never had advantage of this. We've got Jesus Christ glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father, worthy of the name that is above all names because He humbled Himself to death, even death on a cross, because He accomplished the greatest act of humility in the history of the universe. The Father is pleased to bestow upon him the greatest glorification in the history of the universe. And because of that, with Christ victorious, glorified, seated at the Father's right hand, now the Father and the Son working in and through us in ways that Israel never could, in ways that Gentiles never could, in ways angels never could. It's causative. And we ought to be very thankful for it. All right. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And um, skip down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then here's yet another question. Remember that their disciples, their heads were spinning. What is all this? They couldn't understand any of it. So here's Judas, not Iscariot said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear, which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. All right, we're going to handle verses 15 through 24 as a unit as we get to work on this the church's greater works require trinitarian abiding love the church's greater works requires trinitarian abiding love we're going to do these greater works it's only going to be possible because he goes to the father and because the father and the son are going to send the holy spirit and because we will have the abiding love of father son and spirit only in that circumstance can we then achieve these greater works. The church's greater works requires Trinitarian abiding love. John 14, verses 15 through 24. John 14, verses 15 through 24. Say, well, Israel had, a, had an understanding of love, didn't they? They did, to a degree, as far as it went. They should love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. So they had, a, they had a, uh, an approach to love, to love Yahweh, their Elohim, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then secondly, to love their neighbor as themselves. So they had an approach to love. But it wasn't a love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It wasn't a reciprocal love of uh, the Father to them, the Son to them, the Spirit to them. All right, There was no abiding in that love. There was no message of love to Israel that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that the Lord your God will abide in you and love you and disclose all things to you. No. Yahweh disclosed Himself to them in uh, fire and fear and law, and wrath. Completely different from how He's disclosing to us in the abiding love that we have in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Alright. So, we're going to build on what we saw already in chapter 13, sub-point A. The new commandment for the church is to love one another. This is motivated by integrity love for Jesus Christ. See, we get to bridge from chapter 13 now into chapter 14. Subpoint A, the new commandment for the church is to love one another. That's John 13, verses 34 and 35. So we'll introduce this whole 
uh, upper room discourse. A new commandment I give to you. This is not for Israel. Israel had ten commandments. We get a new one. <laughs> All right. A new commandment for the church is to love one another. To love one another. I just want to remind you, this mutual, reciprocal, integrity love for one another is testimony to the lost and dying world that we are disciples of the Christ who came. Of the Christ who came and died and rose again and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We, we demonstrate our position as disciples to this lost and dying world by our love for one another. No Old Testament believer would have ever understood that. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. If you seek me, you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. This is not for Israel. This is not for the Gentiles. not for the angels. This is only for the bride of Christ, the body of Christ in the church age. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That is unconditional, sacrificial, lay down your life for the sheep. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. The Old Testament had no... If you have to teach the doctrine of discipleship from the Old Testament, how would you do it? (laughs) You'd have a hard time doing it. Yeah. You could come up with a general, like Psalm 119, Proverbs. You come up with a general fear of the Lord and loving his testimonies and his statutes and so forth. But really the, the idea of being a disciple as an identifiable component of your salvation or your dispensational, your stewardship participation is, is foreign to the Old Testament. It's just not found in the Old Testament. You know, you're a Jew. You're a Jew because your parents were Jews. You're in the tribe of Simeon. You're in the tribe of Levi. You're, you're in the tribe you're in because that's the tribe you're born into. And whether you're a disciple or not doesn't change that. Whether you're a disciple of the, of the Torah, like David was, like the psalmist was in Psalm 119, they were powerful disciples of the Torah. They loved God's statutes. They meditated on His precepts day and night. They were wonderful disciples. But they didn't have to be to continue in their tribe, to continue in their stewardship, to continue in their land grant reception or allotment or blessing or or their position as Israel. Right? They didn't even to be saved. You could become the next high priest and not even be a believer. Just as long as your dad was the last high priest and you, you follow after him. The only requirements there were the requirements of a physical birth. Ours is the stewardship that has the requirements of an indestructible life and the heavenly glories of being in Christ. So this, high, this whole thing, even as all men will know, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. This is revolutionary. This is revolutionary. You know, was, it, was a Jewish person in the Old Testament supposed to testify to the whole world that he was a Jew? <laughs> you know? Did, was he under an obligation to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and tell people he was a Jew? But we are to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and tell people who we are. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We, we manifest that by our love for one another. So, that's our new commandment, to love one another. This is motivated by our integrity love for Jesus Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you don't love Christ, there's no way in the world you're going to love one another in the church. You know? I mean, let's face it. Um, a lot of us are not lovely or lovable, right? I mean, Fallon's lovable. Who couldn't love Fallon? But, but me or a lot of other of us? I mean, goodness. God so loved the world. Is that because the world was lovable? No. That's why this is agape. That's why this is agapao and it's not phileo. This is where you love and you don't take into account the merit of the object. But how much more powerful it is when you do take into account the merit of the object. Some people don't like this because we're told to agape Jesus. And we better agape, agapao Jesus. And I think a lot of believers don't. 
because they, they love Jesus for what he did. They love Jesus for who he is. They love Jesus on a rapport basis with phileo because he's worthy of it. We're commanded to love Jesus in spite of his worthiness, apart from his worthiness. Love him for your character, not his. Love him with agape love, integrity love. Whether he deserves it or not, of course he deserves it. But regardless of that, separate his merit. Separate his merit from your choice to love Jesus Christ. Love Jesus Christ from your priesthood. Does that make sense? You say, well, I never thought of it like that. I love Jesus because <laughs> i got a long list of reasons why he's worthy. Of course, i got the same list. But check that list. Separate any worthiness for his love. And love from your own character, your own integrity, your own volition, your own priesthood. Love not for who he is, love for who you are. In your character and integrity. On an unconditional, sacrificial integrity basis. And then go ahead and add to that the rapport love of, for who he is. Okay? Motivated for integrity love for Jesus Christ. See, it's the only way you can do this. The only way God could love the world is for his own internal character of agape love. Because the world wasn't lovely. I wasn't lovely. He loved me and gave himself for me. Not because he is love. Not because I deserved it. Alright? And this is how we can love one another. This is how, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. This is how when a brother in the, in the church just insults you like you can't believe offends you, insults you, says something thoughtless and stupid, okay? And what if it was your pastor who said the most boneheaded, moronic, idiotic thing in the world, okay? Because whatever, because <laughs> he's thoughtless. And so he said something hurtful and didn't even think about it until a week later, a month later, a year later. All right, can you still love? You're commanded to. Can you still love? And it's not because you love your pastors, because you love Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus Christ with agape integrity love, then that means one another, we are Christ. We are the body of Christ. You want to serve Christ, serve one another. You want to love Christ, love one another. Okay? You want to bless Christ, bless one another. So, the new commandment for the church is to love one another. This is motivated by integrity, love for Jesus Christ. Compare John 13 with John 14. And I think you can put this together very well. Now we're looking at agapao and agape love. Agapao and agape. Agapao is the verb. Agape is the noun. Agapao and agape love are particularly concentrated here in chapter 14 and in chapter 15. In chapter 14 and in chapter 15. This is not an accident. You get rapture doctrine. You get greater works doctrine. Then you get an avalanche. Or you get not an avalanche. The avalanche is in 1 John. You get uh, rapture doctrine. You get greater works doctrine. And then you get love one another. That's the Christian way of life, isn't it? Agapao, A-G-A-P-A-O. The Strong's number is 25. These are some of the earliest alphabetical words in the, in the Greek New Testament. Agapao is 20, number 25 and agape is number 26. There are 143 uses of agapao in the New Testament and 116 uses of agape in the New Testament. So you put those together and you've got uh, almost 260 Verses to look at. And a lot of verses will have both the verb and the noun. But you've got um, about 260 places in the New Testament. That's, that's a fair amount. You can spend a lot of time just reading verses on love. And we're not even talking philos or philet with love at this point. We're just limiting it to agapao and agape. Particularly concentrated here in chapter 14 and in chapter 15. Here are the uses in chapter 14. Starting with where we are today in verse 15, but it comes back in verse 21. And notice four times agapao is used. Could be either agapao or agape. I combined the verb and the noun in these numbers. So uh, verse 15, four times in verse 21. Twice in verse 23, verse 24, 28, and 31. 
even more in chapter 15. In John 15, you've got it three times in verse 9, twice in verse 10, twice in verse 12, as well as verse 13 and verse 17. You also have some phileos mixed in, some philoses mixed in in chapter 15. So let's look at this concentration. In a lot of ways, um, I simply enjoy doing this just for the benefit of saturating my mind with verse after verse after verse after verse. And even apart from actual study, uh, there's a value in just reading and rereading and rereading and and uh, the repetition that places it in your mind. Some of the things I like to do, I even created some slides for this. Bring up tables like this, where I don't. That way, I don't have to, even have to flip pages. I just put a. I just put a uh, summary up on the screen. I look at that and I see the snippet. I see all the uses there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Ah, okay. Uh, the one who loves me and the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And you, you just start seeing the snippets as you work your way down and you're reminded of those verses. You see all four uses there in verse 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and uh, my father will love him and will come to him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. See, you observe there's a cause and effect relationship between loving and obeying. The one who does, does. The one who doesn't, doesn't. Um, I will go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Say, is this another one that you didn't, so you aren't? Is this a second class condition? It is not true. It is not true. Had it been true, this would have been your your response. But since that wasn't true, this is what you're doing or not doing, as the case may be. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. That's by the time we get into chapter 15. And we start realizing that this whole abiding in love thing is absolutely necessary in order to abide in the vine and bear much fruit and so as to prove to be my disciples. Some, some folks say, well, it's two different messages. There's a love message and there's a fruit message. It's the same message. You can't bear the fruit if you're not abiding in love. There's just no way, no way to do it. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. There it is in verse 12. Uh, you got the noun, agape, that's used in verses 9 and 10. Abide in my love. You will abide in my love. Uh, then abiding in his love. That's the Father's love. Uh, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. There's no greater agape in the universe than the self-sacrifice on behalf of others. This command, this I command you that you love one another. So let me ask you something. <laughs> Which do you appreciate more, the Ten Commandments or the one commandment that he repeats ten times over the, <laughs> over the process of these chapters? That's right. It drives the point home, doesn't it? it drives the point home. By the time, uh, you know, I think this impacted the Apostle Paul when he was writing on spiritual gifts. Because they said, you could have all these spiritual gifts, but if you don't have love, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. You could be the best pastor in the history of the church age, but without love, forget it. That's, that's first things first, your first love. All right. The, um, it's going to even carry into the, uh, into the high priestly prayer. Let me get back to this slide here. There will be a third concentration that comes in the Lord's Prayer to God the Father when we get over to John 17. Join me there in John 17. I'll give you a preview of what we have coming up. A third concentration comes in the Lord's Prayer to God the Father. You know, this commandment that He gives to us, He's not just putting heavy loads on us that He Himself does not carry. He's not just giving commands to us that He Himself doesn't exhibit. This is the life He lives. He lives a life of agape love for his father, and his father loves him. They have integrity love one to another, not taking into account the merit of the object of that love. Of course, the father's worthy of it, but the son loves him anyway. And of course, the son's worthy of it, but the father loves him anyway. They have agape for one another, which really feeds their phileo that they have for one another. 
And this is the pattern for us. The, um, he's not asking to take us out of the world. Don't confuse. See, there's a sentimentality. It's fallen. It's human. I think it's demonic that mocks God's love. It says, well, if there, was a, if there really was a loving God, then your, your child, your baby wouldn't have diabetes. Okay? Ask Scott and Celia about this. All right? Or uh, your child wouldn't be born with this disability or this whatever as if as if you know everything everything in this world that testifies to sin to rebellion to the fall of man to the angelic conflict every disease every component of darkness out there the world itself is the cause of it right sin and death and judgment and Satan and all this other stuff. But then they use this as evidence in their attack on denying God's existence. They say, well, if there was a loving God, then he wouldn't allow this. That's not true. Yes, there's a loving God. And he permits this. But he has such greater blessings on the other side of this. Because of this, through this, so don't mock the God of love. Understand that the God of love sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. In spite of all these horrible things that take place in this fallen world. So he says, I, don't, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. To actively be at work, provide, protect, supply every need. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Do we have testing in this world? Of course. It's not a love deficiency on God's part. In His love, He provides for us. Sanctify them in the truth. And I love this. So you get down here to the unity that we should have in Him. Verse 20 says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, it's not just the, the eleven. But for those also who believe in me through their word is the entire church age. John 13 through 17 is for the entire church age. It's for you and I today in 2012 AD. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We have to give testimony to the world that we are his disciples. And we have to give testimony to the world that... The Father sent the Son. He's the only provision for this lost and dying world. This is a believe that. If they accept the believe that, they're going to be ready to believe in. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. You see, this is deep doctrine. This is paterology. This is the, the depths of agape love. You're not going to get this in a light and fluffy approach to Christianity. The little 10-minute sermonette once a week. Go be a moral person. You've got to study to show yourself approved. You've got to occupy with Christ. You've got to be fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And you've got to be stable on that rock no matter what hell is unleashed around you. No matter what conflict you're under, no matter what health test you face, your finances, your your dirtbag boss, your 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 uh, thoughtless husband, your ridiculous pastor, your outrageous gas prices—I mean, everything else going on in the world—and you're not tossed here and there by any wave. You're you're anchored on the rock. The world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. We have a concentration of love. Two of them in verse 23. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. Here's the future disclosing that's going to happen. So that the love which you loved me may be in them, 
and I in them. The ongoing disclosing that we receive day by day in the church age. We'll pick this up next week because if you think this is something, <laughs> John writes an entire epistle about love, and this is First John. And if you think you got a concentration in John 14 and in John 15 and in John 17, no, no, no. That's simply the introduction. You want to learn about love? We love Him because He first loved us. Or anything about abide in my love? You've got to go to 1 John chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. So we'll, uh, we, we'll uh, spend next week dealing with agape love. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thy Word is truth. Father, uh, we thank You for love. Teach us what this love is about. We're expected to have it for one another. If we're husbands, we're expected to have it towards our wives. But Father... Uh, this is the this is the love that uh, comes from our own character and our own integrity and our own uh, priesthood, Father, based upon how you are shaping us. So, Father, I pray that you are shaping us after the pattern in Christ, uh, that we might be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man, that we might grow to the maturity of the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, Father, teach us your word that we may know more, that we may love more. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.